My name is Greg Lyons, and this is my story. I was born December 9, 1969, at Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico to Barry and Sharon Lyons. When I was a baby, we moved to Illinois, then to Maryland, where my little sister Sarah was born, and finally, in 1976, to Roseberry Drive in Huber Heights, Ohio. I didn't grow up in what you would call a church home. We'd been a few times here and there, and I actually remember my Uncle Rod and Aunt Linda taking us to church whenever we stayed with them. When I was in grade school, I know we went to a vacation Bible school or two in the neighborhood. Also, I know there was a period of time where myself, my sister, and some friends from the neighborhood rode the Joy Bus to the Church of Christ on Fishburg Road. I wouldn't say we were ever long-term regular attendees. However, my parents made sure we knew right from wrong. Now along the way, God's seed of knowledge had been planted directly or indirectly by various family and friends. When I was around the sixth grade, my parents told my sister and I that they were separating, and my mom moved out. In 82, about a year later, their divorce became official. This left me very frustrated and confused. I never really had seen my parents fight, and it always seemed like we had the typical American happy family. So here we are, nearing the end of my sixth grade year, I'm an overly emotional kid, trying to find my way. I want to please everyone and be the good kid, and my world is rocked by the dissolution of my family's foundation. As I entered the seventh grade, I was more of a loner and what I was at in what I would call my nerd stage. I've gotten glasses and braces by now. Wisemore Junior High was a much bigger school than Shenandoah Elementary, and competition to be in was fierce. I was picked on. I was a failure at sports, my previous group of friends more or less abandoned me, my parents were officially divorced, at the end of the seventh grade, my two best friends at school moved away. Then, the Air Force, to prevent us from moving to North Dakota, sent my dad away to Shimia, Alaska for a year. Since my two best friends moved away, I started hanging out more with a neighborhood kid that I'd known for years. My friend was one of those guys that looked a lot older than he was. This meant he could easily purchase things most kids our age couldn't. We started experimenting with chewing tobacco, dipping, and smoking. My friend walked into a bookstore and was able to buy a magazine. A porn magazine. Therefore, my occasional glance at porn when I'd been run, able to run across it evolved into an actual addiction because now I had a source. I was hooked. I was using a life of sin to fill a hole in my heart, even though I didn't know it. Sex with fantasy girls, smoking, foul language, you know, all those things that according to the world are typical junior, boy, junior high boy stuff. Of course, all this while we maintaining a relatively nice boy image with my family, a nice boy image at school, and my grades were slipping, but everything else was cool. In 1985, upon the invitation of a friend, I started attending the Hebrew Heights Church of God Youth Group on Sunday nights. Later, I started going on Wednesday nights. A few of us who were friends at school went together. I figured it would be fun, and plus I thought it might be a good place to meet some girls. Summer of 1985, I pushed the limits quite a bit. I met a girl whose family life was a mess. I was obviously pretty screwed up in more ways than one. She was looking for affection, and I took advantage of it and of her. I was beginning to think that girls were just another way to make me happy when other things weren't working for me. Not that I was a complete jerk and tro didn't truly like or think I loved any girls, but there was always an underlying motive to make myself happy. 
Soon I was at Wayne High School, and I was a drummer in the marching band. Although no longer the blatant nerd loser I was still in junior high, I was pretty confined to my small group of friends and still considered very low on the Wayne totem pole of social status. But by going to high school, getting a job, and learning to drive, it opened up a whole new world of freedom and opportunities for me to engage my selflessness. By the time I was a junior in high school, 1987, I had experienced smoking, casual drugs, alcohol, porn, sex, and several other things. I was an expert at playing the game. My family thought I was great, the people at church thought I was great, and I was even a regular attendee now. I managed to stay out of trouble at school. February 1987, Wayne High School basketball game, and I'm playing the bass drum in the pet band. There's a girl sitting at the bottom of the bleachers, and I happen to notice her. About all I know is she's a sophomore girl named Kim Baker, she's a warriorette, and I'm certain of one thing, she will be mine. Over the next few months I see her here and there, mostly walking to class in store call with Missy Smith. She always says hi and blinks with beautiful brown eyes at me. August 5th, 1987, a big group of us decide to go see the Lost Boys at Beaver River Cinemas. I arrange to sit next to Kim. By the end of the movie, we aren't just there together, but we're there together. So life was good as far as I could tell. I had decent grades, marching band was a blast, had good friends, decent social status, got a hot girlfriend, and her and I clicked just like you can't believe. She's even going to church with me. Speaking of church, you know, I'm still going to Hebrew Heights Church of God. And a lot of what they say about this Jesus character, you know, it makes a whole lot of sense. So we continue to go to church together, and eventually we both accept Christ, but we had not yet thrown off our sins. September 16th, 1987, I go to Kim's house after school. She's pregnant. I was worried about how it would affect me and what I wanted. And then there's this major conflict inside me because now I'm considering myself a Christian. Yet, I also know that the true me is this fornicating, self-indulgent, nasty person. So now I'm crushed that I have sinned, yet I'm more crushed because I'm caught. She tells her parents and somehow they manage not to kill me. They tell us they will take care of everything and that we should just keep everything quiet. September 24, 1987, Kim and I lost our first child. Her parents never mentioned it around me again. It was like it never happened. Besides us, our parents, and a couple of close friends, no one knew. And since everyone around us who knew about it acted like it never happened, we did the same. But not a day goes by that both of us don't wonder what should have been. September 27th, 1987, three days later, Kim and I were both baptized. Stupidly, we never really stopped sinning, even though we had claimed salvation and had been baptized. We polished ourselves up, we became more careful, we didn't do any more casual drugs, and we drank occasionally, and the smoking was very sporadic. We tried to push ourselves into more church activity. We built a facade that hid our sin, 
but put on a show, and everyone thought we were great. My secret addiction continued, but we were the perfect couple. In September of 1988, we became engaged. When it came time for Kim to go to college, I followed her to Bluffton, Ohio. We were very involved and continued to feed our faith in various ways around campus. There were still things we were doing that we knew we shouldn't. Through college, I continued my addiction to selfishness, smoking, alcohol, magazines, and videos. The magazines and the videos were still my secret addiction. After college, we got married. We lived in Lima, Ohio. Miraculously, we survived the turmoil of high school and college, and we remained together. For a while, I did pretty well with my demons. Married life was great, and soon we even had our beautiful daughter, Samantha. Occasionally, I would regress and grab a magazine or a video, but nothing like before. Not long after our son, Alexander, was born, we got the internet. Things really went downhill there. from there. I was constantly looking for more methods, images, movies, etc. to add to my collection. I would be up at all hours of the night, constantly trying to figure out what else I could do to add to my stash. I got hooked on chat rooms and spent a lot of time there too. I neglected my wife and kids to the point where my wife was considering suicide very seriously. At one point, we even considered getting a divorce because we knew were both so very unhappy. The demons would come and go. Somehow we managed to get ourselves into counseling, and things would get better for a while. Then it seemed like the cycle would begin all over again, and I would be searching for an endless supply of water that does not satisfy. We moved back to Huber Heights and began attending the Huber Heights Church of God again. A friend of mine from church who had gone to Promise Keepers with me suspected something was up. We started a discipleship, and one night he just asked me if I was into porn. I confessed. He had me give him all of my stash and told me to get rid of the internet. Well, I gave him my stash, and he destroyed it, but, he kept, but I kept the internet. On April 1, 2001, I was surfing for porn on my computer in my office when my three-year-old son walked in. He didn't really see what I was doing, but I know he saw the picture on the screen. It was then that I realized I was out of control. I had deliberately sought out porn in the middle of the day with my children in the house. The next day I sought out help on the internet and found a Bible-based group that was able to minister to me. I started one of their courses and it only took a few lessons for me to understand why I could not break this cycle sooner. So many times when I had tried to stop before, I was doing it because I thought I had to, like a rule. Finally I realized that I had to want to stop. It was that if I was truly seeking a vital relationship with Christ, I would naturally want to stop, and I would want to succeed at stopping. For if I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature and dead to sin. Through this group, I found huge support and a large group of accountability partners online. Of course, leave it to a man to screw up what God has done. I actually remained free of porn and sexual immorality for over a year, then I had a brief relapse. I realized it early and I asked for help online. This time I was able to get some local church support as I was trying to make the issue more well known and as something more than just a hidden men's problem. Again, I was able to go a little over a year. By this time, I had been successful, but I also became prideful. Instead of look at what God can do, I was saying, look at what I can do. This time when I relapsed, I did not seek help. Soon, I was searching online for everything all over again. 
But now, I knew how to go about it so well I could hide it and still pretend I was victorious. In February 2004, God finally said enough, and he spit me out. One night, I got drunk, and in a fit of self-pity, wrote a very graphic letter about my struggles and sent it to many members of my church. It was a combination cry for help and an angry cry for someone to pay attention to a problem that I've been trying to raise awareness of for years. The next morning I awoke and realized what I had done. Guilt, shame, embarrassment, and fear washed over me. I was sure I would be kicked out of the church. I was sure my wife would leave me. I would lose my family, and I would go to hell. Amazingly, something else happened. My original discipleship buddy that I mentioned earlier, Rob McCormick, called me to come to the church later that night. I pulled into the church parking lot and saw several cars. As I started to walk through the lot, I realized that many of the cars were those of men I knew. All I could do was stand there and weep. Rob came out of the church and led me into the chapel, where there were nearly 15 to 20 men there waiting. I broke down as soon as I entered. These men, these men who I thought really didn't care, these men surrounded me, held me, cried with me, and prayed with me. These wonderful brothers in Christ reached down into the darkest of pits, and they pulled me out. No, they carried me out. One by one they affirmed me, asked me how they could help me, and they comforted me. Then, they devised a plan to help me. First daily, then eventually every few days, now at least weekly, one or more of these men will ask me the important questions. What have I been doing? Where have I been visiting? How is my thought life? Is there anything I need to confess? They keep me accountable. And they let me know that I don't have to hide anything, that I can be honest and let them know when I fail. And have I failed? Yes. Have I stumbled? Yes. Have I crashed and burned? No because they won't let me. Are my failures fewer and far between? Yes. I'm doing pretty good. I do occasionally stumble, but nothing like it, the past. God won't let my friends let me fail. I'm here to tell you that you don't need to live a perfect life. Nobody is perfect. Christ doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he expects you to try. Christ wants a relationship with you. Temptations may still present themselves, but you need to flee the ones that you can. You need to amputate the ones that you can't. And you need to give everything to Christ to deal with if you can't deal with it. I'm actively seeking His will for my life daily. This is only part of my story. God has done so many things in my life, but I wanted to share this specific circumstances right now because I know this topic is considered taboo, yet it is a problem that is rampant in both children, men, and women in our society. The sooner we learn to let God fill the void in our hearts, the better our lives will be. Oh.